are listening to the podcast with Patrick Attaway. My podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, my own writing, as we get into my latest novel, Greenskin. Now, if you haven't listened to the past two series on Birch and the Charles Price novella, you may not be familiar with how I'm going to proceed with this novel, but I'm going to read it page by page. I'm not going to make any major skips unless I feel it necessary just to progress things. But I'm going to be not only reading, but also discussing in depth everything around this novel. I've been mentally prepping for this for weeks because I knew that I was going to have to not only talk about the experience of writing, the meanings behind things and stuff, but also kind of respond to the general rhetoric about the novel there seems to be a a conversation being had about it so i i need to talk about that but the first thing i gotta address before we start reading uh, if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast hi i'm patrick nice to meet you however i usually spend the first 10 minutes just talking before we get into whatever we're doing so uh, last night at 1.46 a.m., I was awoken because our power went out. Apparently, a tree fell on a power line somewhere. But I didn't find that out until the estimated time for it to come back on, which was after 3 o'clock. So, you may be wondering, why didn't you just go back to sleep? Well, I sleep with two fans on. We have a ceiling fan and we have a fan in the corner of the room to provide ambient noise. And also, my bedroom, there's something weird about my house. And my bedroom is warm all the time, which is why we leave our bathroom door open in our bedroom because there's a vent in there. And there's only one vent in the bedroom itself. So it doesn't matter if the rest of the house is freezing. My office and the master bedroom are both going to be different than the rest of the house. This is a house that was built in 1984. So it's not too old, but at the same time, they weren't really thinking ahead too too much about the AC. I, like many of you, would not be in my right mind if woken up in the middle of the night the way that I was. So apart from the kind of weird silence mixed with the darkness and the confusion of first waking up. There was a noise outside and it was the wind blowing my homemade bird scare. I have a bird scare that's made of out of old CDs because we kept having birds coming into our carport, which used to not happen. But ever since we put lights out there, for some reason we've been attracting a bunch of birds. So in order to deter the birds, and this has worked, uh, now scare did not work. Uh, I got some string, some sturdy twine string, and four old burnt CDs from the 2000s and 2010s, strung them together, and now I have this reflective thing that is pretty cool to look at when the sun hits it, but also the wind blows it and it knocks against the outside wall, which creates noise that 
deters birds from, it sounds like I said deters, deters birds from approaching. But I was unaware of this when I woke up and I thought either the water heater was making a noise because sometimes it'll go by that sort of thing. Or it was someone outside fucking around. Now, once I got my head on straight, I realized what was going on. But then, since I knew I couldn't go back to sleep without the fan on, I got up and I checked my phone in the living room because I didn't want to wake my wife up. And I lit a candle. I turned on our artificial LED candles in the living room. I also tried to find more LED candles that I bought a couple of years ago that apparently my wife used all of. Their intended purpose was just this. When the power randomly goes out and we need light that isn't based around me lighting a bunch of candles or holding a flashlight or my phone. But, you know, fuck that, I guess. Then my wife wakes me up at 8.12 when I should be sleeping until 10 or 11. And we have to go to her job because she has to let someone in. She has to give a key to a new tenant. She doesn't work in an apartment complex. She works in leasing. So that wasn't fun for me because I had to sit in the car on I-20 and pray that we didn't get hit. The storm that was going on was just crazy and then it stopped and then it was very bright and hot outside all right i'm done bitching so i started writing this book almost a year to the day that i started writing birch my fourth novel i started writing this in december and it was my attempt at writing a quote-unquote literary novel now if you followed my progress on Substack, which someone did, and they still didn't really get what I was going for with the book, which is hilarious to me. But the literary part of this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, okay? This is not supposed to be a seriously boring literary novel. I kept saying that I'm writing a boring literary novel for the first time. I've always wanted to do this. Yes, I have always wanted to write a literary novel. And this is a literary novel. But it's one that pokes fun at the genre at the same time. So, I started reading Percival Everett in 2014 when I took an American literature course. And uh, Erasure is a huge influence on later drafts of Price of the Trinity. So, that and I'm Not Sidney Poitier, both of which I've read on the podcast. So, if you haven't heard those, go listen. But Percival Ever is this brilliant literary author who bends the expectations of the genre. He has a novel about a baby genius called Glyph. And it's a literary novel. A couple of years ago, he released a book called The Trees. It's a zombie novel. Okay, but it's still literary. It's not a like Walking Dead style horror novel. For Greenskin, I was specifically influenced by his first three novels. Suitor, Walk Me to the Distance, and Cutting Lisa. I haven't covered Cutting Lisa on the podcast. I'll probably do it eventually. 
but not only have I covered Suter, I also taught it in my English 1101 class last semester. So I have a very intimate knowledge of this book. And Walk Me to the Distance is what partially inspired me to write this. You know, I wasn't lying. I wanted to write a literary novel, something that people could read in college classrooms one day. I doubt this will ever happen. But it was with that intent in the writing. I wouldn't say it's a novel by an English major for English majors because, quite frankly, I don't like most English majors that I run into. But apart from that, it was also very inspired by David Sedaris, his humor, but more specifically, everybody knows my two influences. Okay. You can probably, if you've listened to me talk, if you've read my Substack, if you've read anything I've written fiction wise, you know that I'm inspired by two authors in particular, Brady Stanellis and Charles Bukowski. And we can throw Flannery O'Connor in there for good measure. I mean, she's always kind of the silent influence in my writing. And this does have a slight Southern Gothic feel to it, but it's it's kind of an upbeat novel, all things considered. Uh, Lindsay Papalizio pointed out that it has a, this feel to it that everything works out in the end. This is the first novel that I've written that didn't have anyone die in it. It's the first novel that I've ever written that didn't have any violence in it. You have to understand, my first novel, Demise of the Trinity, when it came out, everyone commented about the violence. Everyone commented about the violence in it to the point where I think that some of them didn't want to proceed and read Price of the Trinity, not only because they thought it would be more of the same, but also because they didn't really understand what the hell a companion novel is. Like, why can't you just commit to a prequel or a sequel, Patrick? But listen, I don't want you to think that I'm pretentious. I don't want you to think that I think that I'm smarter than everybody or more intelligent. But you have to understand, I'm a lot more well-read than most people just by virtue of the fact that I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in English, I've read a lot of books. I read a lot of books before I even went to college. That doesn't make me smarter. It doesn't make me a better writer. But I'm drawing upon a wealth of knowledge that I've accumulated over time. I know what a literary novel is. I know what qualifies as literary. And a large part of what makes Greenskin a literary novel is that it's a character study. Literary novels often draw upon less plot and more character study. That's a common trope within them. There are two things that people comment on when they've read this book. Number one, sex. Number two, <laughs> I can't believe that's something that people talk about. But I couldn't believe that people made a big deal about the, the violence and demise of the Trinity because I don't consider that a very violent book. But, you know, my perspective as the author is going to be different than readers. The second thing is that this book is about me. Okay, this is a book about a character named Wayne Pallidus. How did I come up with the name Pallidus? It's not a real last name. So, those of you smart cookies out there, you don't have to be an English major to do this. Type in the word Pallidus, P-A-L-L-I-D-U-S, 
into Google, Bing, Yahoo, whatever you use. And then the word Latin. Now, this is what I did to come up with the names for Nero and Rosa in Surviving New America. I typed in the colors that I wanted their names to be, and that's how I got their names. Rosa is Latin for red. Nero, I believe, is Latin for gray. But pallidus, there are two things that will come up. Number one, pale. Also, pale yellow green for the word pallidum. I remember in my English 1101 class in 2010, my professor rolling her eyes over something that was not even topical at the time. She complained about how on the nose the characters in Harry Potter were, like Draco is short for draconian. This is not a book about me. Wayne is not me. Now, as a fictional author, you'll know that I have to write what I know. And I'm in my 30s. I've only lived so much life. With my first four novels, I was able to put a, pull a lot of stuff out of my ass because of the world that I created. It wasn't the real world, but this is based in a somewhat realistic world. So when I read from chapter one, we're going to talk about this opening scene for a moment. Wilson comes out of the stall and nods at me as he leans in to wash his hands. The only time we run into each other anymore is in the bathroom, and he's starting to grow colder each time I make a joke about him being handsome or riding off into the sunset with each other while riding a llama. How's that wife of yours? Wilson asks. Can't keep your hands off me, I say. Who could with that thick head of hair? He gestures at his shaved head, though there's an outline of his hairline just above his ears. Instead, Wilson keeps a beard of some sort throughout the year. Sometimes he shaves it so he looks like Sam Eagle from the Muppets. You got a few more years before you get this, he says. I think mine is thinning in the back, I rub my crown. R.I.P., he laughs. Ain't that the worst? The last time I got a haircut, the lady pulled her hand mirror out just to ask me if the back looked okay. That's when I saw the pale circle in the back. I'm only 27, and my father isn't bald. My maternal grandfather didn't go bald. However, some genes skipped a couple of generations and decided I should lose my hair, as if I'm trying to hide the fact that I'm going bald. It couldn't be from the front like Jack Nicholson. No, it had to be like those guys in their 40s on eHarmony trying to find their soulmate after a second divorce. You'll notice with the opening line, it's nothing profound. The opening line of this novel is Wilson comes out of the stall and nods at me as he leans in to wash his hands. This is very grounded. It sets the stage for the rest of the novel. He's coming out of a toilet. Now, you can complain about what you may think of as juvenile humor in this novel, but it's kind of right here in the first paragraph. 
The only time we run into each other anymore is in the bathroom, and he's starting to grow colder each time I make a joke about him being handsome or riding off into the sunset with each other while riding a llama. This is already bending the narrative into something that's humorous. Now, you may not find this opening paragraph funny at all. It may not make you laugh, but you can tell if you put on your thinking cap and you really you know, look into it critically, you'll see, ah, with my first two novels, I used to have a, a bookcase in my living room that I recently got rid of, but what I would do is I would pull out my favorite books, like Less Than Zero or Factotum by Bukowski, and I would read the opening lines, I would read the closing lines, I would read certain parts of the chapters, I flipped through American Psycho, like it was the Bible. The last chapter of Price of the Trinity is the result of me intentionally copying Brett Easton Ellis' style. Okay? So, this is not something that I did for Greenskin. I didn't think of a profound opening line. I didn't start everything by trying to set the stage in the typical literary way okay so in creative writing classrooms they actually tell you to steer away from that they want you to be as grounded as possible so i leaned into that with the intent of showing this is going to be as grounded as possible this book starts out in the bathroom of an office building and it's two men basically comparing different stages in their lives as they grow older. And what is a sign what, what what is balding a sign of? Not only aging, but losing a certain amount of credit in society. Notice that Wayne talked about how he's going bald at the crown of his head, which is embarrassing. You ever see those guys who have like really long hair and then in the back they've just got a big old bald spot. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Some people don't care about it. Sure. But for those of us who have hair that's thinning in the back, it's embarrassing. It shows that we're losing cachet. It shows that we're losing a part of our masculinity. And you may not agree with that, but there's a book called Iron John that directly refutes that notion. Hair for men is supposed to show off, much like Samson, a sense of strength. It's one of the first things that people notice about you when you walk into a room. Why am I spending so much time talking about the first page of this novel? Because it sets the stage for everything. And if you miss it, you're missing the point of a lot of this novel. This novel is not just about a man whose skin turns green. You'll notice at a certain point as you progress through the narrative, people, including himself, kind of forget that he has green skin. That's the point. See, there's this thing called symbolism, and this man's skin turning green in an unexplainable way, that is something that is rooted in literary history. You ever hear of a novel called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison? where the first chapter, the prologue, goes into how 
he may or may not actually be invisible. That's symbolic. At the end of Erasure, when Percival Everett's protagonist, Monk Ellison, starts to confuse himself as to whether or not he's actually becoming this other author, Stagger Lee. At the end of I Am Not... I am not Sidney Poitier. He kind of becomes Sidney Poitier. It's bending the rules of reality. This is fiction, people. This is something that you can't say, well, this breaks a rule here, so it can't be literary. This breaks a rule here, so it's not realistic. I'm sorry that I'm not writing a story about people baking cornbread on their mama's potbelly stove, but fuck you. I didn't mean to sound as condescending as I did. I've already explained that I'm not in the best of moods today. But I'm responding to the rhetoric about the novel by a very minority uh, group of people. Namely one person. But beyond that, I expect more from readers than what I've received from this one person. For the most part, every single person who has spoken to me about this novel candidly has said that they enjoyed it and that's all I need. Before I sit back down at my cubicle, Kendra pulls out one of her earbuds and slaps her palm on my desk. Hey, Wayne, she says, when you submitted my claims for NCP last week, did you staple the W9 form to each of them? I don't even remember yesterday, I say. Well, you know if they get denied, I'm going to have you do them over. Why would I do your work again when you're here now? Why wouldn't you do it right the first time? How about I not do it at all the next time you're out? Lisa, our team lead, leans over from her chair to look at us as if we're fighting over whether or not grasshoppers and crickets are the same thing instead of working some more claims. Sit down, Wayne, Lisa says. Kendra, I saw him print out the W-9s and cover letters last week. Kendra turns her post Malone back on and returns to ignoring the world's existence. Similarly, I pull on my headphones to keep listening to Mark Maron's interview with Evan Peters. Some people actually work the full eight hours with just the ambient sounds of the industrial-sized printers and people like Kendra and me bitching at each other. Here's the thing about Wayne. This conversation also clues you into one of his character flaws. So, he could have just told his co-worker that, yes, I printed those out, I sent them, thank you for asking. Something like that. Instead, he gets a little combative with her. Why would he do that? Do you think he just did that out of nowhere? No, they have a history together. Imagine that. Since 2017, I work medical claims and appeals for EHR Interactive. For about 14 bucks an hour, I can really put my bachelor's degree to good use in a field I didn't even know existed until I applied for the job. I graduated in 2015 thinking I'd get some job experience for a year while taking a break from school and eventually apply for a grad program. That plan took me all the way to 2019 and I'm still not annoyed enough with my career to go back to school. Admittedly, I like having a job I don't take home after I clock out. 
whatever I want to do with my remaining five hours before bedtime is my charcuterie board. That usually involves sitting in a drive-thru with my wife Lynn for 30 minutes, watching an old sitcom on Hulu while we eat, lying on my couch with my Nintendo Switch controller keeping my thumbs taut, and burning a layer of skin off in the shower before going to sleep with the office on. Is anyone getting the vibe that I'm giving off here as the writer? Uh, Having read a lot of Bukowski on this podcast and talked about his influence on my writing. This is very much like that quote that people like to pull out from Factotum, which is kind of out of context, but it's basically men are expected to get up, you know, force themselves to eat, shit, get dressed, sit in traffic, go to a job to make someone else rich, and then come home, eat, go to sleep, and expect to be grateful for the whole experience. This is very much like that. He's telling you he doesn't have much of a life. And this is something that many of us can relate to. When you have a 9-to-5 job, you've already finished school, You're not really working towards anything except for paying your bills. This is most of America right here. Wayne even says it right here. I know that this is life for most people. They work a job, go home to do nothing, and eventually retire or die of cancer before they're 70. Sometimes they take a few days off to get sunburned in the Gulf of Mexico. However, I'm 27 with a wife who is 24, and she's beginning to think we're too young to be so old. I think that's a direct quote she stole from a show on HBO. It's actually a reference to White Lotus. Management wants us to work 50 claims a day. I usually get 50 done before 11. Kendra gets 30 done by 4. Lisa says, I'm the second most productive claims analyst in the entire company, which obviously amounts to a bucket of piss since my pay only got increased by 50 cents this year. The department director, Ron, told our managers, who instructed our team leads, that there's enough turnover that there won't be any layoffs in 2020. Considering some people aren't even making 30000 a year, I'm not surprised people are leaving. Many of, us see, many of us oversee millions of dollars coming through insurance companies to the doctors, yet we're making less than $15 an hour. Sure, the CEO tells us that without our work, none of this company's prospects and accomplishments would be possible. I'm sure Sam Walton's ghost says the same thing to Walmart cashiers. The sky is orange by the time I leave the building and my Ford Escort is hot enough to kill a baby or cook a Hot Pocket. My apartment is five minutes away, but I wish I could use traffic as an excuse to come home late. Instead, Lynn comments that I'm late if I don't show up by 5.40. Well, she used to. She also used to make dinner so we could eat by the time I got home. Most evenings, she's lying face down on the bed with her phone, providing the only light in our room. Hey, I say. Lifting a leg in the air, Lynn lets me know she's still alive and breathes hard Jesus. Breathes hard out of her English pea's English pea nostrils. I can read, I promise. Taco Bell, I ask. Ugh, Lynn says. Why don't you tell me what you don't want and we we can work from there. No to Taco Bell, she says. I'm fine with Subway, Jimmy John's, Crystal and Pizza. 
Last time I ate Crystal Burgers, I prayed to God that if he relieved me of my pain as I shit my stomach lining out, that I'd never eat there again. I'm sure he's used to broken promises, though. What kind of pizza do you want, I ask. I don't know. This is likely why I'm going bald. How can she say no to pepperoni, though? I wouldn't marry someone who would order Supreme. Sausage and peppers on pizza reminds me of bird duty on a black Porsche. As I'm evacuating all the water and Coke Zero I drank to Gay, Lynn walks up to the bathroom door and stares at me. This usually means she wants something. That something could be a hug or financing a new car. I think we need a new bulb, she says. Your skin looks yellow. Racist, I say. You pee too much. Lynn is snoring on the couch before I finish the last slice of pizza. If I turn the TV off, the silence will wake her. Every few minutes, her phone lights up from a notification. She's friends with people I've never met. They're not from our alma mater or her last job. Somehow, Lynn built a network from home. After my shower, I lie down on our bed naked with some moisture still on my back. Veins pump hard throughout me. I cannot cure Lynn's depression or find her a job she won't want to quit. When we met in school, she was working to pay her way because she was estranged from her parents. Since she was old enough to work, Lynn held down a job. There hasn't been a catastrophic event. Neither of us cheated on each other and I don't abuse her. We don't get into shouting matches. After quitting her job at the library, Lynn stopped talking as much. She wouldn't laugh at stuff we watched on TV. The weekend trips to Target, Dillard's, and at home stopped. No question I asked her got a real answer. It's rare she'll even want me to touch her. Now, at the beginning of this paragraph, he says that there hasn't been a catastrophic event. Let me tell you something about Wayne. There's this notion of an unreliable narrator. Now, what's unfortunate about reading is that you're not looking at someone's face, so you can't tell whether or not they're lying to you. But in this case, he's definitely bending the truth here. It's true that he didn't cheat on on his wife and she didn't cheat on him and they didn't abuse each other. They don't get into shouting matches. But there is something... Maybe it's not the main thing that led to her having this era of depression. But it definitely contributed to it, and you find out later in the book. Kendra wheels over to my cubicle and holds her notepad as if she's taking notes on everything she perceives I fuck up on. I stop my podcast and look at her. Have you been outside a lot? She asks. What do you mean? Are you feeling all right? Sure. Your skin just looks a little darker or something. Did you try to dye in your hair last night or something? There's a little green on your hairline. No, I say. Lisa. Kendra snaps her fingers. Lisa studied cosmetology. She'll know. What, child? Lisa doesn't even look up from her desk. Look at Wayne and tell me he hasn't tried coloring his hair. Lisa squints before getting up and coming over to inspect me. All I wanted to do was download these medical records for an appeal to United Healthcare. At least four times a day, I have to submit them through Optum. Wayne, 
What did you try to do with your hair? Lisa bends over. You're too young to be doing all that, child. I didn't do anything but shampoo it last night, I say. Then maybe you need to scrub a little harder because it's looking green up at the top of your forehead. I put on my headphones and they both laugh as if scrutinizing me at work is warranted. Of course, five minutes later, I'm looking at myself in the bathroom trying to figure out why my hairline is suddenly green at the edges. Maybe it's been slowly changing like the thinning hair in the back I didn't notice before. I've never heard of stress causing someone to go green, though. Again, this is not just a book about Wayne turning green. This is not just about all the things that happen because he turns green. And we get into it very quickly because of that. If it was just a book about him being green, I would spend a few chapters with him still, you know, normal. No, we're leaning into this. We're getting into it because for one thing, it's a huge foil for what happens in the rest of the novel. Sure. But also it's symbolic, just like at the first scene when he's analyzing his his thinning hair in the back. Okay? It marks a change in his life. Now, I was explaining to a friend of mine who... She was the only one who complained that there's no explanation for why he turned green. She said that, I got through this whole novel and you never tell us why he turns green or what causes it. That would miss the point, but it's symbolic. And part of what it's symbolic for is a quarter life crisis that is common amongst millennials. It's how so much can go wrong in our lives and we're doing everything right. We're doing everything that we're told to. Wayne went to college. Wayne has a full-time job. Wayne is supporting his wife, but it's not enough to sustain himself. And so everything is going wrong. He's not you know, losing his hair at a, rap, at a rapid pace. His hair is not turning gray. He's not having panic attacks. No, he's turning green. It's partially due to stress, but it's also, it's fiction. Why would Percival Everett write a book about a baby genius? And this is a less literary example, but we all know The Green Mile. The Green Mile is a Stephen King novel. It was actually a series of kind of like novellas that he released. But if you've ever seen the movie, you know that the movie is very grounded, except for one thing. Okay? This is a trope. This is something that is common amongst fiction. It's not a science fiction novel. It's about a real man in the real world working a real job, and everything goes wrong because he turns green. My skin does look less pale, too. The color is a little unnatural. Whenever I'm in the sun, my skin, my skin turns red for a few days before returning to paper stock white. What if my liver is giving up on me? Neither of my parents drink, so I never took interest in alcohol either. In fact, my father is a minister. He'll probably tell me to pray it away. By the time Kendra and Lisa are gone, I'm googling why my skin might be changing suddenly. Am I jaundiced like a baby? Maybe it's cancer. Everything on the web eventually leads you to thinking you have cancer. 
I don't know if hepatitis is any better. My primary care provider is able to see me the following Monday. By now, the yellowing of my skin is more pronounced, so if I'm experiencing some sort of organ failure, I'm at a moderate decline. Dr. Till first saw me in his office when I was a teenager and had a curious eye infection that caused long strings of pus to come out. Now, he should be retired, but he's still seeing patients on a daily basis. Hmm, you don't have a temperature. Your eyes look fine. I don't sense anything off about your blood pressure or pulse. So we'll need to draw blood, Dr. Till says. I can do it here, or you can go across the street to the lab later this week. Just get it over with, I guess, I say. A nurse comes into the exam room with a needle and two vials to take samples, and Dr. Till licks the end of his thumb trying to see what the green around my hairline is about. No, it won't come off. In fact, the scalp under my dark hair appears entirely green. When the nurse tries inserting the needle, my skin doesn't break. I don't even feel a little pinch. She looks at the doctor, who tilts his head. Let me try, he wheels over. Dr. Till holds my wrist while pressing the needle's end into a plump vein. But it's not entering my body. When he pulls the needle away, the little mark has a green hue. Butterfly, he snaps his fingers. I'll be right back, the nurse says. Has this ever happened before, I ask? No, he shakes his head. If we can't draw blood through your arm, we can't test your liver functionality. I can order an MRI, but I'm afraid your insurance won't give us authorization. I'm ha- I-, I might have to admit you to the ER. Then I'll get a bill for $3,000, I say. Plus, the ER doctors are out of network with Cigna. You claims, analysts, know your stuff. The butterfly needle doesn't do the job either. I can hear Dr. Till on the phone with Cygnus pre-authorization department and he tries explaining my situation. I imagine if he documents that my skin is changing colors and they can't draw blood, he can fax my records after submitting the CMS 1500 form. Personally, I would print out the form and stable the records in a certified envelope. My wife, her only complaint about this book was that I wrote too much about claims and Wayne's job in this. So let me explain. So CMS 1500 forms are forms that were designed by Medicare, also known as CMS, Center for Medicare Services. And they decide all the rules for insurance, even commercial insurance. Now, commercial insurances and Medicaid have variances from those rules, but generally speaking, they're supposed to follow CMS guidelines. A CMS 1500 form is a red form that has all of your insurance information, it has your address, it has your doctor's address, it has their MPI, their tax ID, and it also has the CPT codes and diagnosis codes that they use to determine what's going on with you. And a lot of times, like say if you come into an urgent care clinic or if you're just coming in to see your your primary care doctor, your, your PCP as we call them, uh, you're g- just going to have maybe uh, a 99214, which is an E&M code, evaluation and management. If it's your first time, it'll be a 99204. It could be more or less. 
it's less likely to be paid if it's a 99205 or a 99215 because that represents an hour of the doctor's time, which is very rare. So the thing about it is, is that what happens with insurance is that providers will submit these claims and they will be denied sometimes, actually a lot of times. Part of the reason why they do this is because over 50% of the time, providers are not going to follow up on the denial or they're unable to. So if a provider is part of a larger network, let's say they work for a hospital, they're seeing a lot of patients. And unless that hospital has outsourced their claims department to a larger company who would probably outsource that work to someone in India, by the way, what ends up happening is that you have hundreds, if not thousands of claims that almost fall by the wayside. And by the time they get to them, they're out of timely filing. Well, Wayne, Dr. Teal comes back. I'm going to have you in and out of here in about 15 minutes. If you'll follow Teresa, she'll have you change into a gown and we'll take a look. Are you submitting the imagery to another provider? I ask. Yes, he nods. They'll need pre-auth too. Otherwise, they'll get a denial. Oh, it should be fine. 26 modifier codes end up getting denied a lot more than you think. I'm not going to get any information for another week. Lynn meets me in the carport in her t-shirt, underwear, and no shoes on. For a moment when I hug her, I breathe in her scent and remember when she wasn't miserable. The early days in school, when she was a freshman living in a dorm room and spending nights in my apartment wearing her RA that she'd been kidnapped, we had sex back then, skipped a few classes just to stay in bed together. Sometimes I don't bother waking her up from the couch to come to bed at night. With the hall lights off and shadows leaning on my skin, I finally see the yellow Lynn saw was just a light shade of green. I'm not going to tell her about the needles or MRI. However, whatever is changing in me is unavoidable. She's going to see my decline firsthand. With her state of mind, Lynn won't be any kind of caretaker either. Do you want me to cook or something? Lynn asks. We don't have any meat thawed, I say. What do you want for dinner then, she asks. Burger King? Ew, she pulls away from me. No Burger King, no Wendy's, no Taco Bell, no pizza, and no KFC. I never want KFC. I'm just saying. Okay, what about McDonald's? Fine, she says, but you're driving. This is a very real conversation, which is part of the literary genre, and also part of what I'm poking fun of. See, the thing about literary authors is that they want to make their dialogue as realistic as possible. So they'll draw on real conversations. And many times it could be about the most mundane bullshit. But the thing about real life is that people are not breaking out into monologues. You know, for the most part, there's a back and forth. Unless you're just sitting there in silence and they feel the need to speak. Or they're telling you a story. You know, real life conversation is a lot quicker than people realize. And it's like Bukowski said, if you want to be a good writer, your writing should have a rhythm to it. As you go, bum, 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 bum. It should be not only quick and to the point, 
but you should pack a lot of emotion and thought into, you know, words that don't take up too much real estate. This is something that people critiqued Hemingway for. And what's funny to me is that having read Hemingway, I'm not a fan of Hemingway, but I've never considered him a simplistic author the way that other people have. Maybe he was for the time period, but I still see influence from, you know, the Victorian and romantic eras in his writing, because you have to think the novel, we've talked about this before. The novel is a relatively young format, even now. So it didn't really kick off in earnest until the 1800s and primarily in England. And you have American authors who were part of this, but there's a reason why in college, especially in grad school, when you study the novel, you're studying stuff from, from England in the 1800s because the novel in its infancy was this wild, wild west of genre. So when you think of, early novels, or when I think of early novels, I don't just think of the Bronte sisters. I think of other things that I read, especially last year on the podcast or late 2021 on the podcast. Like, And before the novel, the primary long form writing was either epic poetry or plays. And plays are made up of what? Mostly dialogue, right? So by the time you get to the early 20th century, what are these authors like Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald, what are they expected to draw upon in terms of influence for their novels? A lot of it is their own invention, sure, but they're reacting to something else. And whether or not you accept or reject something, you're still being influenced by something for better or worse. That's why Bukowski's writing is the way that it is. He grew up in the library reading the classics of the canon, things that he thought he was expected to know about as an author. And guess what? A lot of it he didn't like. So a lot of it influenced how he did not write, which is just as important as how you write. I could end the episode at chapter one, but that would be cheating you. Okay. I've spent a lot of time talking about it, but we'll get into chapter two. Because there are things I need to talk about with this too. As I'm folding claims into envelopes, my Microsoft Teams chirps with a notification from the HR lady. I saw her at the last all-hands meeting and thought she was attractive in an understated way in that she was obviously old enough to be my mother yet had the physique of someone you'd want to cuddle with if stranded in a cabin during an ice storm. Somehow I doubt she'd She's calling me up to her office for a trip to the mountains, especially giving my appearance makes most, pe- most corpses look sexy. Sometimes I can read. Our office building only has three floors, but I take the elevator because my blood pressure won't tolerate the stairs. The third floor is for software engineers, security offices, and executives. We lowly analysts don't venture up here often. My colleagues refer to the bottom floor as the basement, as if we're cretins kept away from sunlight. But there are windows on an entire side of the floor looking out on the scenic parking lot. Miranda's office is smaller than my manager's on the bottom floor, and she doesn't have any windows nearby. However, her smile could absolutely fool me that she's actually happy to see me. Hey, Wayne, she curtly nods. You can have a seat. 
really, you're not in trouble or anything, but I did want to reach out because of some concerns from your colleagues. I know I have a right to confidentiality, I say, but I did go to my PCP last week and I'm fine. Well, I'm not suffering from a contagious disease if that's what you're worried about. Right. We have to make sure you're not introducing something that could hurt others in the workplace. And my other concern is that your work might be facilitating stress that's influencing your condition. Most of my work stress comes from Kendra nagging me and Lisa enabling her and our manager Tracy being unqualified for her position while reminding everyone that she's in charge. Two weeks ago, she found a claim I printed for Blue Cross Blue Shield and asked Lisa to scold me for not submitting it electronically. What she didn't know, because she hasn't worked claims in four, worked a claim in four years, is that Blue Cross Blue Shield also accepts claims for third-party plans, and they automatically reject all electronic claims missing their alpha prefix. Admittedly, I also find it annoying that all of her emails read like they're written by a third grader. Are you about to ask me for a doctor's note or to sign something, I ask? Our official position is concerned for you and your colleagues' well-being. If we're ever trapped in a cabin together, she just lost out on me taking care of her needs before my own. Unlike those men you hear about in internet memes, I know how to find the clit. We'll put my tongue in places they want and can be a real sweetheart in our post-coital haze. See... This is the first reference to sex in the whole book. Now, this is something that a lot of people may not realize, just like they may not realize that there are only 15 pages of violence in American Psycho, but there are only two sex scenes in this novel, and I don't even think they take up a full page. However, men and women both think about sex. It's just a reality. And not that long ago on my Substack, I wrote about sexuality and this kind of fear that is becoming prevalent amongst... I have a hard time even saying it on here, but because it seems ridiculous. But there is this fear that some straight men experience when they're trying to express what they like, what they don't like, because they don't want to come off as chauvinistic pigs. Now, this is a novel where Wayne isn't necessarily speaking directly to an audience. These are his thoughts. This is also a common trope in novels in general. It's called stream of consciousness. And what you'll find here is that he's being very direct and honest about his thoughts. The fact that he did sexually fantasize about this woman is evident. However, He's not telling you about his specific fantasy. He's not drawing you a picture. What he's doing here is actually mocking uh, an internet meme, which is actually very common on places like Twitter, where people make fun of men saying they can't find the clit. You know, it, it, it's it's tiresome. He doesn't actually have any sort of expectation of this woman. He doesn't expect her to bend over because of how he could please her. It's nothing like that. He's just expressing a thought. And in a novel where we later find out a little something about Wayne and his past, it makes sense. So if you take things out of context, uh, you're kind of being an asshole, but also 
you're missing the point. You can always let me work from home, I say. Let's not get impractical. You're welcome to continue working in the office if you assure me that you're not housing an illness that will affect employees and your immediate surroundings. I'm sure everyone will give me a wide berth when I walk past them. For now, Miranda tells me to move my belongings and equipment to one of the rows away from everyone. I'm actually happy about this because I can avoid Kendra. She doesn't even take her headphones off to ask me why I'm moving, why I'm taking my monitors out of my cubicle. No one around appears to give a shit. They'll all gawk when someone gets fired, but me going to another row seems to be exactly what they want. I suppose it says something about my productivity and efficiency as an analyst that I'm not getting outright fired. My site pays this company close to 600000 a year for software and claims follow-up. Originally, I worked a little pulmonary site in Virginia that was a one-doc shop. By the end of the first year, I had another pulmonary site, neurology one in Texas, and a doctor in Illinois that only reviewed test results for other providers. That's how I know about claims with 26 modifiers getting denied without prior authorization. There's not a lot you can do in those situations, but I, so I tried hardballing Aetna's denial by billing the patient. I would explain more about this process, but I'm pretty sure Wayne explains it um, better than I can right now off the top of my head. But I can tell you that prior authorization is the insurance company giving the provider the go-ahead to provide you with the service. So something like an MRI is very expensive. And if a provider submits a claim without asking for pre-auth before, they can get a denial, which means that the patient is probably going to get a bill or the provider is going to have to write it off. Either way, no one's going to be happy. So they have to literally call the insurance company. Now, they probably have a specialized line, and some doctors even have a dedicated pre-auth department. But call them, they still have to do. So they call and they say, hey, this patient is being seen for such and such. We need to perform an MRI. This is my rationale as to why. And the someone on the other end will either say, no, you need to try this first. For instance, when I went in for issues that I was having with my back in 2021, the, my insurance company told my provider that you cannot give him an MRI and figure out what's going on right now. You need to have him go through three weeks of physical therapy to see if his condition improves before you perform an MRI. Let's get back into the reading. Healthcare providers bill patients whenever there are certain denials. If there's an issue with their policy, such as a lapse in coverage or coordination of benefits adjustment code, then the patient gets their full balance in the mail until they rectify the issue. COB denials only require the patient to call their insurance and update who is their primary and second insurance providers. If they're smart, they'll ask their insurance to go ahead and reprocess their claims. Sometimes a rep from Blue Cross Blue Shield or UHC will call me asking to resubmit a claim when a patient updates their COB, but that's a trap. People who work in the claims department of insurance companies don't directly interact with their customers, so the customer care reps are the ones calling me instead of their own claims department to placate the patient. 
resubmitting a claim without corrections, and a frequency level 7 on the CMS 1500 results and a duplicate denial. So I always tell the reps that they need to reprocess on their end or the patient will continue to receive invoices and be sent to collections. However, there is another reason we bill patients. If we submit medical records or reconsideration or even have a hard time dealing with insurance over the phone, sending the patient a bill is a way to bluff the greedy bastards not paying their claims. The patient will either contact our call center or their insurance first. If they call us, we tell them to contact their insurance because they're refusing to pay their claims. Having an angry customer can do wonders for getting claims paid. But there's some gray legality involved. Worst case scenario, Center for Medicare Services will get involved and audit a provider. This can result in hefty fees. Some providers get put out of business. However, it's not terribly common and the issue is usually resolved within a few weeks. I billed an Aetna patient for a missing pre-auth denial. My rationale is that we tried getting the claim paid through an appeal, and I explained to Aetna that this provider doesn't see the patients in person at all. He merely interpreted their test results. Without him, their PCP couldn't correctly diagnose and treat the patient. Aetna didn't care. Beside the fact that Aetna has a bad habit of misplacing appeals we send via fax and certified mail, they're not as big as Blue Cross Blue Shield and UHC. And they sure as hell act like it. The call that Wayne is about to describe is not unlike what a lot of claims analysts and people who work in medical claims and RCM and all that, insurance in general, it's not uncommon for someone to call you, whether you work at the insurance company or whether you work at the doctor's office, and try to play hardball, try to, you know, make it seem like you're doing something wrong, and then the best way to handle that is to play it off. And this is what he does. Around 8.31 morning, I got a call from an American Aetna rep who had his own office. Most insurance companies outside outsource their customer reps to India. An American rep means they're taking things a little more seriously. As such, they act like the provider is going to roll over for them. I'm not one of those people. Hey there, Wayne, he said. I'm calling because a patient reached out to us regarding getting billed for services they received in August from Dr. Selleck. But number one, they claim they never saw him. And number two, I see that we already sent you a denial for an appeal, so I was hoping to get that cleared up. Okay, I said. Instead of continuing the conversation, I like the silence marinating for a couple of minutes. They think you're going to immediately comply with their request. Insurance companies act like they pay your claims, so you should play ball the way they want. No, a doctor will gladly bill a patient thousands of dollars, exceed their two allotted appeals, and even get their lawyer involved before they write off entire accounts. I mean, it usually doesn't get to that point. One side caves eventually. I've had to write off many claims, but that's after fighting for a provider to the extent that my resources allow. So, are you writing off the balance, he asked. Oh, no, I said. We've already informed Aetna that this provider doesn't see any patients at all. He interprets their lab since the 26 modifiers. He can't get prior auth for any of his patients because he doesn't even get the results until the lab is done processing them a week later. 
which is true, by the way. Yes, I, I understand that, Wayne, but you can't bill a patient for these services. Are you going to send the claim for reprocessing? No, you've already submitted an appeal, so there's nothing I can do. Okay, then we're going to keep billing the patient. If that's the case, I'm going to issue a letter to the provider and contact Medicare. Okay, I said. So, are you going to write off the balance? No. A week later, Aetna issued a payment for the claim. I realized that what I'm doing professionally is ethically prickly. That's why I'm working for the bigger site that pays over half a million dollars a year. Of course, my pay hasn't increased as a result. Near the end of the day, I go, well, before I start reading that part, I want to talk about this conversation a little bit. So, this is something that kind of happened. Okay, so, as Wayne states, this provider only sees patients. Well, he doesn't see patients. All he does is interpret labs, which is something a lot of providers actually do, especially as they get up there in age. What they'll do is their office hours will be strictly for interpreting labs for other providers. A provider cannot interpret their own lab results and they can't just have another provider within their network do it. They have to send it to someone in another office. So what ends up happening is because of the nature of this, the person who's interpreting the labs is not going to be the one calling the insurance saying, hey, uh, I need approval for this because Technically, they don't need approval for it. What they have to do is rely on the original provider to get off for the, the claim. And a lot of times that happens and they still get a denial. So in this case, the patient was billed and Aetna called. They very much like this conversation. And what ended up happening is months later, the provider did end up writing off the balance. And it wasn't for much money, by the way. <laughs> It was usually for like something like 28 bucks. In the novel Casino Royale, James Bond wins a card game that is based on a real card game that Ian Fleming, the author, was part of. Only Ian Fleming lost. James Bond wins. And that's the difference between reality and fiction, my friends. Near the end of the day, I go to the bathroom and Wilson is looking closely at himself in the mirror as if worms are crawling through his beard. He sees me whistles through his teeth and waits for me to stand at the urinal before he leaves. When I get home, my dad's car is parked in my spot. We haven't seen each other in a few weeks, but Lynn and I haven't felt like socializing. He's never come uninvited when I'm not around, though. Before I get my key in the lock, Lynn opens the door and gives me a look. She probably had to let them in while she was wearing a robe and spent the last ten minutes putting her hair up and changing clothes. I saw Dad's car, I say. They're both here, Lynn says. Mother covers her mouth while Dad sucks air through his gritted teeth. I texted Mom that I had an MRI done and might need help with the bill if Cigna doesn't pay. I've had to ask her for money a few times since Lynn quit her job, so I'm always ready for Dad to try lecturing me or cutting me off. This might be it. Did Batman push you into a chemical vat? Dad asks. I'd have a nicer place if I was the Joker, I say. What's happening? Mom asks. Dr. Till doesn't know, I say. They couldn't draw blood because the needles couldn't break my skin. That's why I had the MRI. And? Mom asks. 
None of my organs are shutting down and I don't have cancer. That don't explain your skin, son, Dad says. Could we all sit down, I ask. Okay, one thing I need to note here. His dad says, that don't explain your skin. No, that is not proper English grammar. It is a dialect. This is a southern family. Lynn hides in the bedroom while my parents sit across from me on the couch. The dining room chair I'm sitting in wobbles like a seesaw. We bought our table and matching chairs from a couple in Rock Mart for 40 bucks. Has work said anything? Mom asks. I still have my job, I say. I don't know what else to do, guys. We'll see about getting you to a specialist or something in Atlanta, Dad says. So you might need to take some time off soon. You know, I don't think I want to do that. Don't you want to know what's happening to you, Dad asks. I'm turning green, I say. It, it might be temporary. What did Dr. Teal say, Mom asks. I already told you I'm not dying, I say. Why don't you go get your skin bleached like Michael Jackson, Dad asks. How do I politely tell my parents to leave me alone? I'm hungry and just got off work, so my brain feels like scrambled eggs. Dad might as well pick me up and shake me like a maraca. Do you want to get dinner? Mom asks. You guys kind of blindsided Lynn, I say. I don't think we can tonight. Is she going to get a job? Dan asks. What if you lose yours and can't work anymore because of this? Me having a problem doesn't solve hers. Excuse me? Dad says. How long has she been out of work? Six months? She needs to be a grown-up and get a job for both of your sakes. All right, I stand up. Nice visit. Good to see you. Bye. We're not going to just let you die with no support, Dad says. I'm not dying. Come on, Marion, Mom says. Yes, I named the guy's dad after John Wayne. Uh, Lynn comes out when they leave. She winces as if her stomach can't handle looking at me anymore. Usually she stares at the floor over my shoulder to avoid eye contact with me now. If she ends up leaving me over this, I imagine even a lawyer with a soul won't see my condition as fair to her. She didn't marry a green man. I, I think that he might be right, Wayne, Lynn says. I'll, I'll, I'll apply to some jobs tonight after we eat. What will you do, I ask. Not another call center, she says. I wouldn't let you do that again. When I think of quality plot structure, one of the first things that that comes to mind is the letter, the Loretta Lynn biopic coal miners daughter, which is probably my favorite movie. And if you've never seen it, it's this film that takes place over several decades. And there's a distinctive feel to each decade and act within this film. So she's in a completely different place when she starts out in the film, when she's living in, is it Kentucky? And, you know, she's living in this cabin without electricity. The only thing that's electric in the whole house is this battery-operated radio that they have. And she meets Doolittle, Lynn, who becomes her husband, and he drives a Jeep. You know, he doesn't ride a horse to get to and from work. He can go anywhere he wants. And this is something that's new for her, and it's exciting, and it's sexy. 
And despite the fact that in reality, Loretta Lynn was actually very young when she met Doolittle. Uh, you know, it was a different time period and the movie presents it oh, a little less creepy, I guess, from, you know, the modern lens. But what you also have to think about is she ends up becoming extremely successful. She lives in this big mansion and in the end, her husband wants to take her back in time. He wants to build a cabin that's like her parents' cabin on the back of their property that they can live in together where they can escape the world that they've created through her success. To me, this is the perfect movie and it's a movie that understands how to begin and end and third acts are very difficult to pull off. So when this novel ends, don't be surprised that it ends almost where it began. And again, some of these conversations, some of these details like about Wayne's job, they may seem kind of boring. That is the point. This is a meta literary novel. I am poking fun and kind of critiquing the literary form. This is very grounded in reality, except for the fact that his skin is starting to change colors. This is why it's so shocking to everybody. When I first thought about writing this, it was with the idea of what would happen if someone's skin turned green in the real world. We're not talking about a Marvel movie here. We're talking about you and I going to the grocery store together and seeing someone who is as green as the lettuce, if not greener you would look at that person. You would respond to them differently. If they spoke to you, you might be a little, you know, scared. What if they have something that you could catch and then you turn green? You know, shouldn't this person be quarantined? What's going on? Another influence on this that I haven't mentioned yet is the writing of Harvey P. Carr and his comic American Splendor, which was very different for the time period when it came out, because it wasn't a comic book about superheroes. It was a comic book about everyday schlubs. Harvey P. Carr was a guy who worked in medical records all of his life. So he wrote about that a lot. He wrote about his real experiences. He also came up with fictional experiences too. I remember in, I think it's the first American Splendor issue, he has uh, a story about a guy who sees a girl that he went to high school with I think she, I think that's the premise. I haven't read it in years, but she's a prostitute. So he pays her to have sex and that's the story. And that in and of itself could be considered literary. You know, it's almost like something Tobias Wolf would write. Maybe not as, you know, erotic, but it's definitely something that Bukowski has written. Something else that I talked about on Substack I researched other novels and other writers before writing certain parts of this novel. For instance, before I wrote the two sex scenes in this novel, I looked at other examples in literary novels. I googled 
literary novels with sex scenes. I looked at other books that I read before that were considered literary that had sex in them. And many, many, many do. So you can't disqualify this as not being literary because there are sex scenes in it. They're not sex scenes that are meant to titillate the reader either. Although I've discovered that doesn't stop people from being titillated by it. You know, when I wrote the two sex scenes that are in price of the Trinity for actually there are more sex scenes, but there are two with the character Lilith. Sorry to spoil things for you. And I showed those to multiple different people. Number one, I had a beta reader and you know, she just kind of balked at how ignorant Ken was, especially about women and sex, which he's 18 years old. That's the fucking point. But also, and that I'm not throwing shade at that beta reader, by the way. She did an excellent job, and she's an excellent person. But then, you know, I made the point, this is not supposed to be erotic. This is not supposed to be a fun scene. This is supposed to be sex through the eyes of this 18-year-old boy and the reality that he's having sex with someone who is centuries old, you know, practically a goddess. And I showed, showed it to someone else on Twitter. And she said, those are hot because they seem real. And by the way, anyone who claims to have read my previous work and then picks up green skin and is offended by something as stupid as sex in it, that seems to me to be rather childish, especially considering I wrote a lot of references to sex in my last novel, Birch, especially with a character named Delilah taking charge. See, that's the thing. The women in my novels, they're not victims for the most part. You have one example of that in Demise of the Trinity, where Aroma Thorne is raped by Harley Freudland, and it's not a good thing. But the, the women in Surviving New America, the women in Birch, the, the, the women in this book, they're in charge, okay? They're making the decisions. They're calling the shots. This is not about dehumanizing anyone, this is a very realistic take on it. So we got through two chapters this week. Next week, we will get through hopefully more than two. Uh, the chapters are actually pretty short the, the further you, you get along in the novel. So that's a good thing. It, it makes it a pretty easy read. I designed this as being like a Percival Everett book, especially his early years where you could literally read one of his books in a day. You could read my favorite novel less than zero in a day. You could read post office by Bukowski in a day. That is what I was aiming for. So anyway, this has been Patrick Hathaway with Demise Podcast. Thank you for listening. Happy